This is the Game Day on Rocky Top Podcast, episode 163. Joel Hollingsworth and Will Shelton here with you once again. Thanks for tuning in. Tennessee beat the Kentucky Wildcats Saturday night in Lexington, 17-3, in uh, what we'll call maybe a somewhat dramatic fashion. Uh, the balls, I thought it was dramatic. You thought it was dramatic? Yeah, it, it was. It was. I was trying to understate it. Uh, but, yeah. So, so yeah. Yeah, like it was It was too boring to be dramatic argument, which I've seen floating out there a couple of places. Uh, I, I thought it was very dramatic. I was I was pumped up, man, when they got that fourth down stop. I thought that was appropriately dramatic. Well, see, but that fourth down stop didn't happen until the end. You know, that first <laughs> quarter, man, that was, you know – that was like over before I was awake. Plus, you know, it was a really long day of college football. I don't, it you was. know, I know that you, uh, you checked out and did some nice family time for the noon slot, but man, I went from noon to three thirty to seven thirty, And I remember looking when at the end of, uh, <coughs> excuse me, at the end of, or, or as Alabama LSU was winding down and seeing that it was like four minutes left at seven fifteen, I was <laughs> like, Oh no, I'm not going to be able to get a nap, you know, because I was worn out already. So, anyway. Uh, Alabama shoe game reminded me of uh, our game against Texas A&M in 2016 where, like, it's, it's a 3.30 kickoff, and I think it ended with something with an 8 in front of it. Like, just <laughs> you, you get that sometimes with uh, those caliber of offenses. Yes, that's true. So, uh, the Vols. Uh, they could not figure out how to stop Kentucky's run game early. Um, Kentucky took the uh, opening drive 75 yards for a touchdown. They they took off 10 minutes uh, off the clock to boot. And then the Vols followed that up with a three and out. The punter dropped the snap uh, and then kicked it right into the guy. <laughs> so it was blocked. Uh, giving the uh, ball right back to the Wildcats at the 24-yard line. And then they only took two plays. And they were back in the end zone again. Uh, we did block the extra point, which was nice. Uh, so they were up 13-0. to zero. Uh, Fortunately, um, they never scored again. They did kind of threaten all night, which is where the drama comes in. Um, Tennessee only got a field goal in the first half. And then they brought in Jarrett Garantano uh, to start the second. Brian Maurer started. Uh, Garantano put together two consecutive touchdown drives to go up 17-13. to 13. Behind a couple of just awesome catches by uh, Marquez Callaway and Josh Palmer. Um, meanwhile, the defense, they'd kind of figured out the Kentucky run game. Apparently what was happening was Kentucky was uh, running the same plays, but out of a different set of personnel. And I guess it's the personnel that, that determines what personnel the defense is going to put on the field. So they sort of suckered the Vols into putting big, heavy guys all bunched up in the center. And then they ran around them for the entire first half until uh, Tennessee figured out what they were doing. Uh, they did get it finally figured out. Um, the last three drives by Kentucky were turned over on downs. The last one, of course, mattered the most. Kentucky was, uh, they had a first and goal from the six-yard line with time winding down. And then from there, it was second and goal from the four, third and goal from the two, third and goal from the one, thanks to a penalty by the Vols, and fourth and goal from the two, and they never got in. And then on the uh, ensuing drive, Garantano iced it with a 10-yard run on third and four. Uh, that led to a first down and the uh, ever 
awesome victory formation. So uh, the Vols beat the Cats 17-13. They're now 5-5 five and five overall and 3-3 three and three in the SEC with two games to go. And so after starting the season 1-4 and four in the first five games, they're now 4-1 and one in their last five and only one game away from bowl eligibility with a hobbled Missouri and a struggling Vandy left on the schedule. So, Will, let me bring you in there. Um, in your post game, you talked about how the Vols have been exceeding expectations for several weeks in a row, Kentucky just being the most recent one of those, and uh, what that might mean for the rest of the season. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, Kentucky, um, now that is, I think, tied with Georgia for as close as Vegas has come on Tennessee. Uh, covers.com where I get all this historical line data from it closed at uh, Kentucky uh, minus one and a half. So Tennessee covered that by five and a half points. I think the Georgia one may have been five, but anyway, that, that's, that's as close as anybody has been able to get a feel on Tennessee all season. And yeah, this was uh, the least aesthetically pleasing when maybe the least aesthetically pleasing performance, there was so much in that Alabama game to, to like, and we're a little more used to it now. So, uh, you know, maybe even there, there are parts of me that felt even more confident coming out of Alabama than you felt at times against Kentucky last night. But yeah, it's, it's the first time it's the first time Tennessee has covered the spread five weeks in a row since Tyler Bray, 2010, before that, the last time Tennessee covered five weeks in a row was the first five games of 1998. So, again, we're, we're treading in some historically unprecedented waters. If, you know, we got a bye week here, but if Tennessee covers against Missouri, it'll be the first time Tennessee's covered six weeks in a row since probably 1990. Tennessee played a 1AA school the second week in 1990. Um, Pacific, it's a game Chuck Webb, uh, his career ended in, for those who might remember that's uh, and I can't find any line data on that, but Tennessee covered the other first five games of the 1990 season. So, uh, yeah, I mean, th this is consistency in the right direction for a longer period of time than we're used to seeing uh, for Tennessee. And again, I, I know it because the Kentucky cover was a closer cover than what we saw against Mississippi State, Alabama, South Carolina, UAB. There's a, a little bit of well, is this still progress? Is this still whatever? I, I think Kentucky's defense uh, is solid. I think that showed uh, at times last night. I think we have to give a lot of credit to Eddie Gran, uh, former uh, running backs coach at Tennessee on the Lane Kiffin staff, did a great job here with Montario Hardesty, uh, and, and caught some flack last year for Kentucky rolling into Knoxville with a one-dimensional offense, quote-unquote, Benny Snell, and Tennessee completely shut it down. Uh, last night was the real one-dimensional offense, and uh, they were really good at it. They were good enough to give themselves a chance to win in that situation and just couldn't get it in there uh, at the end. So, uh, you know, Kentucky's got Louisville left. They've got some opportunity left maybe that we feel better about this Kentucky win than uh, some folks are feeling today. But, yeah, I mean, this is in a take-nothing-for-granted season. Again, it's a fairly historically unprecedented role that, that Tennessee is on right now. And, uh, and, and, you know, the conversations that we're having at this point in time compared to what we were talking about after the Florida game. I mean, this is uh, to everybody's credit over there. This, this is an amazing turnaround. 
it's one of the most interesting stories I think in, in you and I've been writing about the Vols for 15 years now, probably. Um, and this is one of the most interesting story storyline seasons, football or basketball that, that I can remember <laughs> trying to figure out. Cause again, I don't think any of us have got it nailed at this point. Yeah. A couple of things on that, uh, one dimensional offense. Yes. They had 302 yards on the ground and 327 total yards. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, that, that's probably why I didn't feel terrible uh, when they got down inside the five. This is like, okay, you know, we do not need to worry about the pass here. They got a smaller field. They're going to run for sure. And, uh, you know, that's what they did. Shut it down. Um, the other thing is, uh, as far as feeling good about the Kentucky law, uh, win, Sorry, just habit. <laughs> um, you know, it, I don't know if you saw Pruitt's postgame presser, but it was basically a liturgical reading of everything that went wrong. Yeah. You know, it was it was terrible. You know, off, two offsides, the very first drive, you know, all the stuff that I already mentioned about the punter dropping the ball and getting it blocked and not being able to stop the run. And, you know, even late. Uh, we had a chance to, to ice the game early and fumbled the ball. And then even on the goal line stand, there was a, uh, what, a 12, 12 men on the field penalty. Out of a timeout, yeah. Yeah. And it was interesting to hear Pruitt's explanation of that because he says they send everybody out there because you don't know what the offense is going to run. And then they send in the signal and the wrong guys are supposed to run off. Um, and somebody didn't get the message apparently. Um, but anyway, the, the reason I bring that up is, um, it seems like he thought, and I think this is probably right, that really, um, they should have won by more. They were actually, uh, the, the much better team, uh, even though, you know, I know we had problems, um, stopping that run, but I think that's a really prolific running attack and, uh, it's probably okay to feel good about the game because that we, you know, we, we tried to give it away there several times. You know, I'll be curious to see the uh, advanced box score out of SP Plus and see what Kentucky's uh, win probability was. I think if you line it up and play it again tomorrow, yeah, Tennessee probably uh, the talent disparity, all that stuff, uh, the fewer penalty or fewer penalty yardage anyway. Tennessee is probably more than four points better than Kentucky just as those two teams, but that particular game, the way it played out, especially the field position stuff, I bet Kentucky had a greater than 50% chance of winning that game, the way it played out. Yeah. But it just, I mean, it felt like a classic Tennessee, Kentucky game of you get first and goal at the six and you feel like here it is to win it. And you get all kinds of tries as you spelled out and they just find a way uh, whether it's Kentucky finding a way to lose it or, you know, I think third and fourth down, you have to give Tennessee's defense, Tennessee's linebackers in particular, enormous credit. I'm assuming you have seen on Twitter that Chad Morris is out at Arkansas. Right. So that's the second year to coach this year uh, that's been fired. And we were, you know, when Tennessee started, what, one and four, uh, there was some talk about, well, Pruitt's on the hot seat. And, you know, I don't actually specifically remember this, but knowing who I am, I'm sure I said on this podcast that that's just utterly ridiculous. And I still think it's ridiculous, but it also has happened twice now. 
So how close do you think we were to maybe firing Pruitt if he didn't get this thing turned around? I think there are some people that are smarter than me, uh, and and um, I'm getting ready to talk about numbers. And I think both both better with with numbers and have more of it, have more wealth, have more numbers than I do. Some people would say, look, it, it's all money at some point in time. If you lose to the point where you are losing X amount of dollars in ticket sales, and um, lose to the point where we can measure. X number of recruits decommitting, X number of targets, whatever, like at some point. And I think this is way more true for Chad Morris than Willie Taggart. Uh, I, I don't know what Chad Morris, like I didn't see the path out of there for Arkansas. Um, I think there now you're talking about 22 games of data, a really damning stat on him that he's never didn't beat a power five opponent while he was at SMU. Uh, and, and, is now yet to beat one at Arkansas as well. Uh, I, I just think at some point you cross a line financially and investment wise where you just, you need to go ahead and cut bait. And I think that's what happened with him. Uh, Taggart. I think that situation is more complicated at a more complicated program at Florida state, but you know, Hey, if, if Tennessee uh, that Mississippi state game, if you go all the way back to that point in time, if that had gone really poorly, like Tennessee wasn't even competitive in that game, and then you're going to Tuscaloosa, uh, you know, there, there's a there's a version of this I think we were all thinking of at the beginning where Tennessee was, what, one and seven? Uh, and then I think you would have had to kind of re-enter the conversation and and do what some folks are doing, which is individual boosters are really ponying up to pay 10 15, 20 million dollars to get these folks out of there. So, uh, I mean, it was not impossible that Pruitt would have been fired this year. I think improbable, but but not impossible. And with Pruitt too, you could go back to, even though the season wasn't a success, he did beat two ranked teams last year. Chad Morris doesn't have anything like that. And off the top of my head, Willie Taggart doesn't have anything like that. Florida State also has been a lot better, a lot more recently than Tennessee. So that bar is uh, is a little higher and I think you have Florida State fans and and um, alumni and all of that that have never in their lives played second fiddle in their own conference the way they're playing at the Clemson right now you know I, you know Miami was was great in some of those years but they weren't both in the ACC in those years when Miami was really up so I, I think a lot of that fear of getting left behind by Clemson uh, is, is driving that too. So, uh, I think those, the, the Arkansas situation, if I was an Arkansas fan, I'm just not sure what the argument is to keep Chad Morris at this point in time, the Florida state went a little stickier, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it was, uh, improbable, like say for Pruitt, but not impossible by any means. So I want to do a, a quick timeout here. Um, my daughter last night, my, uh, 17 year old daughter yesterday, uh, decided to go get all of the Christmas stuff. And uh, she put up the Christmas tree, uh, her and her friend, and uh, uh, decorated. And right now, all my wife and both my daughters are watching a Hallmark Christmas movie. So this leads to many questions for me. First is, it's November 10th. Is that too early? Number one. Uh, number two... Uh, do you get, since you've been married, uh, have, have you been sucked into the Hallmark Christmas movie tradition? Uh, 
And uh, three, do you do you have a favorite Christmas movie that is not Hallmark? It's so so funny that you asked me this, uh, un- unless you somehow knew this and, and are not telling me that. I, like, I just preached uh, a lot of the answers to these questions earlier this morning. <laughs> oh, so really? I didn't. I know really. Uh, we're we're. Uh, um, because we started, so I'm in a Methodist church. We do Advent, which is four Sundays before Christmas, and that's a big deal. So normally we stay away from things before Thanksgiving, and and I'm typically that way too. Of uh, like we don't have our Christmas tree up, we don't have any Christmas decorations up yet. I I like waiting until Thanksgiving. But um, this book by uh, Jen Hatmaker uh, called Seven Days of Christmas, this uh, sermon series I'm doing is kind of based on talks about intentionally taking all of these practices that get amped up at the holidays, like food and clothes and all that stuff and trying to be intentional about the ways we, uh, uh, go into them because whether you are a wait for the Christmas movie person or not, all that stuff happens anyway, you know, like Starbucks this week gave me a cup of coffee with the word Mary written all over the side of it. So like it, it doesn't wait for us. Uh, and so, uh, we, we talked this morning, uh, about, uh, a lot of those things. So I, typically I will stay away from that stuff. We had a long conversation in our office, uh, we have a Christmas tree branch on the front of our church bulletin. And we were like, is this too much Christmas for November 10th? Is it not enough? <laughs> like just one little piece of, of greenery. Um, but, uh, I, I really love, uh, we talked about this in the sermon too. Uh, I, I, I every year watch uh, Christmas vacation and Charlie Brown Christmas, uh, which seem like they are on opposite ends of the spectrum uh, in terms of content and that sort of stuff. <laughs> but there's something really endearing about uh, Clark W. Griswold Jr., uh, the the childlikeness with which he really wants his Christmas to be perfect um, that I think kind of belongs in the in the Peanuts universe too. So uh, those are those are my two that I watch. Alex, my wife, thankfully is not a she's not a big Hallmark Channel person. Uh, she's more into um, Christmas music and that sort of stuff. And we have had some Christmas music floating around our house so far, but uh, yes, I am the Hallmark channel. Uh, I, someone told me this morning in, in the sermon that there are multiple Hallmark channels now. Uh, so I, uh, as I said, so now you can more... watch the same Christmas movie on three different channels, right? Because yeah, they're all I, the same. That's the secret. I am, very, very confident in the fact, like very secure in my personhood that I did not know that fact until this morning. <laughs> well, I, I will say, um, I actually kind of enjoy them. They're okay. <laughs> so they're, they're getting better. Uh, they are all the same, but you know, part of the fun is, is figuring out uh, the plot and how it's going to end. Like in the first, you know, can you do it in under a minute? It's like the two minute offense you can actually derive the entire plot just by figuring out who the characters are, what the conflict is going to be, and you know who's going to uh, you know, end up singing the song at the end. So back to football. Um, Jerry Garantano started the second half, um, looked good. Brian Maurer, I don't think. What, what, what did you think? He didn't look bad in the first half. He just didn't – he wasn't getting anything done. Did you think he looked bad? Uh, I, I didn't think he looked bad. That really quickly turned into, I think, Pruitt and those guys doing the math on how many possessions are we actually going to get here. You're right. That that's, It and, was a short game. Yeah, yeah. and I think he um, 
again, it fits the personality that we're coming to know here a little bit of there were some RPOs where he 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 was taking the pee from from the snap that he <laughs> is trying to make plays and trying to do things. Uh, a couple times where he read the wrong side of the field, it's freshman stuff. Yeah. Freshman stuff for a guy that hasn't played in three or four weeks. But I think it became apparent that Tennessee could not afford to wait for him to work out the freshman stuff. Here's this is a question I want to ask you is, you know, you were a champion for Garantano even, you know, into the, the middle of October and that sort of thing. And we were holding out for, now look, it, it, he hasn't done anything like what Crompton did in 2009 yet. Let's, let's yeah. show some respect to the mountain values of Western North Carolina and, uh, and, you know, not rewrite history here, but how do you feel about Garantano now? I mean, is this, I think you should start Missouri. I think that's just kind of where we're at is, is kind of back to the beginning on this thing. Is this, is this what you wanted to see? Was it not enough? What's, what's your takeaway on Garantano? Uh, that was actually the question I was going to ask you is, is who do you think should start? So, um, yeah. Uh, so this is what I wanted to see. I mean, I, I just, I want the team to win and I want the guys, I mean, this is probably getting way too philosophical for this podcast. They, people want to uh, just hear about the Vols. But um, for me, a large part of the reason that I watch football and have continued to watch over the past 10 years is that I seriously love these guys and I want to see them grow and mature. And I, you know, I know a lot of people don't care. Uh, I do. And so um, I wanted good things for him. I, I want good things for all the guys. And I realize that sometimes that comes out of uh, success, but a lot of times it comes out of how do you handle yourself when things aren't going well and all your dreams are dying around you. So I still watch the guys even while that's happening, because I think there are some important moments uh, during those times. So anyway, Garantano's had a lot of those, you know, and I just yeah. felt terrible for him. And I just, you know, I, I think that even if he ended his career uh, with that Alabama play, which was, it was a terrible play. Um, but even if he ended his career with that, he'd, he'd be fine. I think he's a grounded guy that's got the right priorities and uh, he would be okay. But man, I want something. I want him to be able to smile and to run around and to hear the cheers of the guys who have been casting derision on him for uh, for a lot of the time too. So, yeah, this is this is what I wanted to see, and it's actually also kind of what I thought we would see because I think you know back in October, my point was that um, so many times we think that um, it's just a guy's ability, and we don't give as much credit to the fact that the team is trying to become a team. And when you change your uh, your coordinators out like we did, uh, as you and I have said many, many times, um, yeah. we, we often underestimate the problems that are associated with, with transitioning to new coordinators. And I thought we were seeing that. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't prove it. I didn't know it for sure. But but now that he's he's playing better, I think that he's the one that's catching on uh, to the to Jim Chaney in the system a little better. I know the uh, um, the quality of the competition is, is slacking off a little bit, but you know, I, I really think that he's going to be just fine, and I think he's going to get better and better. I mean, he's playing with one hand. You know, Casey Clawson wanted to beat Georgia with one hand tied behind his back, right? 
Was that him? That's right. <laughs> so yeah, that is. Here's Garantano. Yeah. He's, he's, he's getting the opportunity to do it, you know? Uh, so anyway, yes, um, I'm a, I'm a huge Garantano fan, but you know, if Brian Mauer's the better quarterback, I'm okay with that too. Uh, I just wasn't ready to conclude that in October. And I think right now um, you're seeing the experience uh, sort of show itself. Have you seen the thing? I don't know if this is just something I've seen living in Virginia. Have you seen the thing with uh, Tony Bennett, the Virginia basketball coach, where he does the speech about the two tickets? Have you seen that? Is that No, what is, what is that? So he, uh, as part of the national championship celebration tour thing, he, he had ticket stubs from um, the, the UMBC where they lost to the 16 seed. Yeah. And he had a, a ticket stub from the national championship game in the final four. And it's a really well done thing. I think he's done a good job honing it, but he talks about that this first ticket is costly and, um, there is a price to pay and all of that, but he's making the point that this ticket is the only way to get where you ultimately needed to go, which is the other ticket, the final four. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's a great metaphor. We've used Tennessee's used this back in the nineties of was getting blown out by Nebraska 42 to 17 in, in some way, a ticket to winning it all the next year. Cause it showed you, you, yes, you got to be bigger. You got to be meaner. You got to be tougher, that sort of stuff. Um, but I think for Garantano and, and you know, we're, it's a little too early to uh, annou- announce or anoint anything as done or a, a corner fully turned. Uh, he did only throw eight passes last night, made some nice running plays too, by the way, with a broken hand. I mean, that That's kid some is really good decisions. Fast. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, but that's what we want, right? Is, you know, now we're back into this conversation of instead of just assuming that that guy's not going to be on the roster next year. I mean, who knows? He's, he's his own guy. He's graduated. He can do anything he wants. I don't think he's done enough to go to the NFL. I think he's going to need another year of college football. And so, uh, we'll see how all that plays out, but that's what you want is that specifically that play at Alabama, but all the other stuff too was obviously painful and painful for him personally and and painful in a way that's unique to being the quarterback at a school like the university of tennessee but maybe it's going to help get him to to where he wants to go i mean that that would be a good story uh so we'll again the theme for this whole year is expect the unexpected we got we got work left to do here uh with missouri and vanderbilt but uh, that was that was at least nice to see that, uh, and, and I think clear before even before he came in the game, the thought of uh, Mauer's not quite on it today. Maybe we should go to Garantano instead of other times when he's been brought in and people are upset about it. I, it, it felt in the moment like this would be a good idea, and it just feels to me now like unless we're so deep inside his head that he has to come off the bench. I mean, this isn't basketball. Yeah. So I don't. I, you're only going to get so many drives. Um, I I just think he's he is Tennessee's best chance to win. I didn't think I was going to say that again, but uh, that, I would imagine the coaching staff has still kind of always felt that way uh, all along. And again, now maybe it's coming that full circle. So let's go to the uh, um, win expectations. I, I know it's weird when you get down and there's only a couple of games left, but. Uh, I, I have run uh, the machine, and uh, the machine says uh, seven-point underdogs to uh, Missouri and something like 17-point favorites against Vandy, which sounds probably about right. 
My, uh, I, I put uh, Missouri at 60%, which is the same place they were, they were last week because I didn't think you got really any data on them. Uh, Kelly Bryant didn't play. Jonathan uh, Johnson, maybe. Uh, their, their leading receiver also didn't play. Um, but right, they, yeah. but, but they also didn't score any points. Uh, so I think it really just depends on whether uh, those guys play or not. And then Vandy, you know, they just they, – they looked bad. So I got Vandy at uh, – I think I bumped them up to 80%. So that puts me at 5.9. But it all really rides on the uh, Missouri game because if you convert that from 60, 60 to 100, then uh, I'm back basically to preseason expectations of 6.5 and rounding up to 7. So where are you at on all that? I, th- I think um... – well, first of all, Vanderbilt's just bad, right? I mean, like, that is a bad football team. And their one win here is against Missouri, which we're also unsure about. I mean, we're in territory now of you lose to Missouri, okay. Um, <laughs> Pruitt cannot lose to Vanderbilt at this point. Like, you can't do that now. Uh, so <laughs> there's going to be – a lot to lose in that game, regardless of what Tennessee does against Missouri, just because of the way Vanderbilt is looking uh, at this point in time. So I'm, I am also, maybe you're undervaluing uh, your, again, too much math in this podcast, but I'm at 80% on Vanderbilt as well. So that's 0.8 wins that puts you at 5.8 by itself. And then I'm at 40% on Missouri, uh, which I need to see if Kelly Bryant's going to play or not. I, I am assuming that he's not completely done. So I'm at 40% on Missouri, which that gets me to 6.2. You, you've got to be higher than 5.9. That must be uh, – maybe I cut and pasted the wrong thing. It was early. I'll go back and yeah, check that. That would be 6.4, right, if you're at uh, uh, 80 and 60? Yes. Yeah. 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 So, so still higher than me. Congratulations. I'm, I'm feeling feeling better than I know. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, bowl games. Uh, you're up on the bowl games. Uh, you've seen some of the projections. I haven't looked at any of them. Uh, so how are things looking on the bowl game horizon? So, again, so much of this conversation is about what's happening above Tennessee. Uh, it's a really weird point to make, but I'm going to try to make it anyway. For all of the angst about, oh my gosh, we could have been nine and three this year, there's a possibility that Tennessee would go to the same bowl at nine and three and seven and five because there's such a hard cut after Auburn. You know, Alabama, LSU, Florida, Georgia, Auburn. There is a hard break there. And let's see. I mean, hey, if Auburn gets waxed by Georgia and then they get waxed by Alabama, they'd be eight four, but. You know, we'll see. But that's that's the way the league has played out all year. Those five teams, that's the traditional powerhouse set. Tennessee is typically the sixth of, of those teams. You have three traditional powers in the East, three in the West, that sort of stuff. But after Auburn, if you don't want to make the argument that it's Tennessee is, is the next best team, uh, then from there you're going Texas A&M. That's, that's kind of the other team that has an opportunity to be listed there. And Texas A&M uh, has, has got Georgia and LSU left on the schedule. Hmm. So uh, I think even if Tennessee and, and Texas A&M are both 7-5 and five 
Uh, A&M also played in either the Gator or the Outback Bowl last year. So all that to say, to me, it's going to be awfully hard. I mean, awfully hard to keep a 7-5 and five Tennessee team out of uh, the Outback Bowl or the Gator Bowl. I mean, you know, take your pick. I'm sure the league office will help take their pick, probably by sending A&M to whichever one of those they didn't go to last year if they went out. But other than that, I mean, who is it? Is it Mississippi State? Nope. Kentucky? Nope. Missouri? We don't even know if they're eligible. And, again, they've looked bad. And that's it. Arkansas is not going to get there. Vanderbilt's already out. I mean, there's just such a hard break there. So there is a possibility if Auburn somehow splits uh, these these last couple of games and goes through the Citrus Bowl, that a nine and three Tennessee team could have ended up in the Outback Bowl, same as a seven and five Tennessee team. So we'll see. There's a lot of work left to do. It's important to remember that because of the way the playoff is lined up this year. Anytime the Sugar Bowl is open, they have to take the next highest SEC team. So whoever doesn't make the playoff, whether that's Alabama and only LSU gets in, or Georgia if LSU and Alabama get in, that team is locked into the Sugar Bowl. They have to take one. And then the Citrus Bowl also is contractually obligated. And I need to look up this language in case Auburn completely does fall apart. But Citrus Bowl also obligated to take the next best SEC team uh, the the best scenario for Tennessee is you get two teams in the college football playoff let's say Alabama and LSU for argument's sake Alabama still finds a way to get in there the Sugar Bowl takes the next best SEC team that's Georgia if Florida can continue to win and at this point that seems like a safe bet for those guys then can they be ranked high enough to steal a New Year's an additional New Year's six at large bid to the Orange Bowl or the Cotton Bowl once you're there, the Citrus Bowl would then have to take the next best team, which should be Auburn. And then you're there. You're at the Outback Bowl. And again, it's it's either 7-5 and five Tennessee or 7-5 and five Texas A&M. And the other one's probably going to the Gator Bowl. So uh, it is very hard for me to see scenarios where a 7-5 and five Tennessee team does not spend January in Florida, which is amazing <laughs> considering where we've been and all that stuff. And, and there are some good ones out there. There's a lot of Michigan in the Gator Bowl projections uh, these days, um, Jason Kirk at SB Nation and Banner Society, Jason does the best bowl projections of anyone that I have ever seen year over year. He's got Tennessee in the Belk Bowl against North Carolina. He's got an, uh, uh, only one SEC team uh, after the playoff making the New Year Six. That would be fun. I, I think uh, getting another shot at North Carolina nine years after the Music City Bowl would be enjoyable in Charlotte, be a good crowd, that sort of thing. So, it's not like there aren't other fun options in there, but I just really think Tennessee is, has got January 1st and Florida staring them in the face. I, we've written this for a couple of weeks. I've talked about it on Sports 180 for a couple of weeks. It's not new. It's, it's just doing the math. Uh, so that lament of, well, we're on a roll, but we have and we played Alabama close, but we haven't beaten anybody great the way you beat Kentucky and Auburn last year. You get to the Gator Bowl, you might get a shot to run into Michigan or Wisconsin or uh, somebody that is going to make you feel much better about the way this thing is going if you can actually get that win. And, and again, we wrote this today. If they finish 8-5, and five, that's still the third best year in the last 12 years. This year could still be the third best year in the last 12 years. This, this is a, one of the craziest things I've ever seen. That is wild. Uh, one of the coolest things I saw yesterday – apart from um, Tennessee's uh, 
goal line stand was Alabama's look to the sideline play. Do you know what I'm talking about yeah. here? Oh, yeah. That was the coolest thing. If anybody who didn't see it or, or didn't realize what was happening, um, we, we've noticed offenses for many years. Um, they'll, they'll pretend that they're going to snap the ball uh, so that they can get a look at the defense. And then they'll look over to the sideline and get the coach's read and get a new play from the coach or a confirmation of what they're going to play. And it'll take, you know, three or four seconds, and then they'll come back, and then they'll actually snap the ball. And the adjustment to that was that the defense, when the offense would do that, they would look to their sideline and make adjustments too or not. Okay, chess match, right? But what right. happened yesterday was Tua – clapped his hands, the ball was not stopped, uh, not snapped, and then he uh, looked over to his sideline, and that caused the entire LSU defense to look to their sideline, and then he clapped his hands, and they snapped the ball, and the defense, or the, the, off, the offensive receivers were 10 yards past the defense before they realized what was happening. I'm exaggerating just a little bit, but that was just brilliant and uh, really fun to watch. But the guy was wide open, caught it. Was that a touchdown or was it just a long pass play? I don't oh, no, it's a touchdown. Yeah, yeah. you. I'll say this for Bama. Uh, even though Clemson really did a number on him last year, there is no number that you can get ahead of those guys and feel safe. No. no. Uh, I mean, you know, LSU, who's, who's plenty good, was up 20 and – I mean, it didn't feel safe, and it wasn't. It was not safe. Uh, those Ole Miss teams back in the day, back in the day as in like five years ago, uh, you know, same thing. They, they got up. I think one of those Ole Miss teams was up 21 on Bama and barely escaped. So, I mean, you you got to – you have to keep scoring. Uh, and uh, it, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, have you seen any of the, the Orgeron stuff that's been recorded on him out of the locker room and on the field and all that stuff? I have not. He's, I bet it's entertaining, uh, though. It is, and it may just be him being him. It may be coaches just not being aware of the fact that you know players have cell phones and will turn them on and record things without you knowing. But, I mean, Orgeron is on tape a couple of places talking about you know, Tuscaloosa. This is our house now, and we're never losing these guys again. You know, Kiffin said the same thing about Georgia in 2009. Uh, so I think it's just them being themselves, but it's just – not that Bama needs any extra motivation to beat LSU, but whew, it was I was it was it was a lot. If they run into each other in the college football playoffs, uh, that's that will be uh, talked about, no doubt. Yeah, and the thing is, LSU they did not look like themselves, and it wasn't just because Tua was playing on one leg. Um, they're just making stupid mistakes, and just they they didn't look like Alabama. It was wild, and they still only lost by what four. Five, yeah. Five, five points, yeah. All right, uh, freestyle. Anything you want to talk about? Should we talk about hoops? We uh, we got like a real game uh, Tuesday. Yeah, uh, and then a, a nice one Saturday. Uh, Tuesday is uh, Murray State. Uh, you get them without Ja Morant, who was the second pick in the draft uh, back in June. So uh, they played nobody and won by like 20 yesterday. Uh Tennessee played nobody and was up 25 with four minutes to go and won by whatever 13. So, um, but this, this team is used to winning, uh, and got a little fight to them. Uh, it's on the actual sec network instead of the sec network plus, so, you good know, news. it's interesting. Yeah. Good yeah. news for anybody with the, uh, 
with app issues or any of that stuff. So uh, it's a good test. It's a good kind of progression test. Anything would be progression after playing UNC Asheville, but this will be a, a, a more uh, a team with a pulse and a team that will be excited to come in and try to beat these guys. Uh, and then just, again, great scheduling this year. Football team is off, so you get Washington in Toronto uh, on uh, Saturday, I think at 5 o'clock. Uh, so that'll be a good uh, – th- that's a real test. Uh, Washington we don't know a whole ton uh, about because they're Washington. And if you're watching Pac-12 basketball, God bless you. Uh, but uh, that's, that's a legitimate. Washington is an NCAA tournament team. Tennessee is an NCAA tournament team, evenly matched probably in terms of where you're going to see them projected in brackets and things like that. So it's it's a good early test. Uh, and as many folks have pointed out, uh, the Gators were sixth in the country at top 25 coming in and uh, all that good stuff. Got Kerry Blackshear and all that. And Florida State, who Tennessee will play uh, in the Thanksgiving week tournament, rolled into Gainesville and beat them. So uh, th- there are very few UNC Asheville's on the calendar. And, you know, this, this is a really good week to find some things out. Uh, and then catching Florida State uh, two weeks after that, and then catching either VCU or Purdue uh, in the next game, this thing's going to get real in a hurry for uh, Josiah James, for uh, Pons, for guys who are playing different roles. Uh, you, you, you know, even if we could – possibly qualify Tuesday as a warm-up I'm not sure it is but that's about it uh, gonna get very real after that but that's that's exciting it, it is it, this is a great week for a buy for Tennessee when you've won and you're hot and there's not much that can happen to you this week that's gonna hurt you bowl projection wise uh, so uh, th- this is a good time for everybody Saturday to yes certainly watch Georgia and Auburn and all that stuff but big basketball game at five o'clock as well was it last week that you and I were joking about, uh, you know, it was uh, Euros, Plastic uh, was not uh, granted eligibility. And we we're like, well, what, you know, what if they just play him anyway? Right. right. Memphis. Memphis you just did that, right? Yeah. Well, those guys, uh, the, the thing the NCAA would have to do, because to your point about vacating wins after the fact doesn't mean anything, the NCAA should be telling them, look, if you play this guy, you're not going to be eligible for the NCAA tournament. Uh, but you know, they're, they're Penny, uh, Penny has not learned how to cheat effectively yet. Uh, and so, uh, I say that it's a little unfair. I, I, my stance on Memphis is well known, but that's, he did that while he was a high school coach. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's, I, I don't know the details on that, but my, my, my quick read of it was he did that before he was, he was uh, Memphis's coach. So, I mean, is that actually a rule violation? Is he a booster? Did he play there? I don't, I don't even know. Oh, yes. Penny Penny Hardaway played at Memphis, uh, okay. lost to the Volunteers in Knoxville uh, in front of, like, 12-year-old Will and a whole bunch of people in the uh, in the early 90s. Uh, that was a Wade Houston team, I believe, that, uh, that beat those guys. Um, but, yes, he play, he's from Memphis. He played at Memphis and then paid something like $11,000 for uh, this kid who's, who could be the number one pick in the draft. Um, to move to Memphis to play at his high school in Memphis. So, okay. so a booster by still, definition, if, if, then probably a, boost, a booster by definition, uh, okay. an impermissible benefit. If he was still a high school coach, I'm sure TWSWA would love a word with him about that. Uh, <laughs> but he's a college coach, but definitely a booster because of that. Now, I don't know what his master plan was when he was doing that. Uh, 
Tubby Smith was such a bad fit down there that I'm sure there were plenty of people talking to him about being the, the coach at Memphis. But uh, anyway, that's that's uh, I I would not want to be the NCAA right now because uh, you, you got so many irons in the fire and the walls are kind of crumbling around you. But again, you you can argue lots of different things, but the violation and the definition of him as a booster in this case are are quite clear. So when they come to uh, Knoxville, they should bring that dude. What's the dude's name? James Weissman. The, James. the seven. You're talking about the big seven foot kid. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, James Weissman. They should. They should bring him, and he and Euros can like go out in the concourse and ball up their fists, and then we can have two cameras, one on them and then one on the game, and uh, you know we'll see which one has uh, more fireworks. I think yeah. that's the plan. Yeah. December fourteenth. December Tennessee 14th. needs to keep winning until then to keep the uh, like you you don't you can lose games later. I don't expect them to go to Kansas and win. They're not going to run through the SEC all that stuff. But let's let's get enough wins here until December fourteenth to uh, to keep the the mojo alive for that game. I imagine you already have your tickets for that one. No, I can't. Saturdays in December are a nightmare if yeah. you are a and you don't live there. Uh, and so I missed the. Um, the Lofton over Durant game in 2007. Mm-hmm. I missed it because that I think that was a Sunday, but it was in December, uh, and I was uh, one county to the west of where I live now, uh, so I missed that one. And uh, yes, I am. That I will be missing. Been, that must that have been like really late because I watched that one. I think up in Minnesota, so I, I must have been up there for Christmas. Could it have been like right around Christmas? week or oh, the week I think, after? Yeah, I think it was like two or three days before Christmas. Okay, yeah. Right. It, was, it was late in the, uh, cause they played Memphis, uh, fun argument for a different day. Single best performance I've ever seen. Chris Lofton against Memphis, uh, the game before that everybody forgets it because he hit that shot, but the better individual performance is the one he put on Memphis, uh, in that same December stretch run. That was when Tennessee, uh, that was Pearl's second year. They went up to the preseason NIT and they lost to Butler when nobody really knew who Butler was or what they were doing at the time. And then they lost to North Carolina and people were like, well, this is, you know, lightning in a bottle. My sister was still a student at the time and said, oh, you know, people are turning on this thing and giving up on it. And then Lofton outscored Memphis by himself in the first half and then they beat Durant the next next week. So, uh, but yes, I couldn't. I, I was not uh, present for either of those uh, performances because that's what happens uh, with uh, living so far away and having a job on Sunday morning. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of the Game Day Iraqi Top podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Do us a favor. Hit that subscribe button. Give us a rating. Leave a review. Mm, I haven't thought of anything for the bonus points yet. Um, do you hear you be thinking about that? Because I'm going to give... Uh, Dean Ambrose, a shout out. Dean has left the latest review on the uh, Apple Podcast uh, page for the Game Day Rock, Game Day Rocky Top Podcast, and uh, you know I, I'm going to go ahead and assume that he was on the right page when he said uh, uh, my favorite Vol writers. So, I, you know, maybe he could have been on uh, somebody somebody else's page, but. I'm wondering if that is actually the person's name or if that is someone choosing the uh, the wrestler, Dean Ambrose, uh, to write it under as. So, Which, if it's someone choosing the wrestler, there's like a 70% chance that's someone who knows me personally. So thank you for that. 
whoever whoever you are. <laughs> Dean Ambrose. See, I don't even know wrestling, so I don't even know who that is. Does he have like? Is that that? Because that doesn't even sound like um, sound like a wrestling uh, brand name. I mean, isn't yeah. it supposed to be something tough or something? <laughs> Dean Ambrose is apparently not tough enough uh, for Joel, so that's good to uh, good to know. It's it's what? not his real name, I know that, but I, hey, I don't. Uh, is he gonna beat me up? I, I don't know. I should have. Maybe that's that's how it works. Is we can uh, don't they still they still run wrestling over in your neck of the woods, like it's uh, Freedom Hall or one of those places? <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I don't I don't hang out at the uh, the wrestling hall. Do they have a wrestling hall? A live wrestling. I tell my wife this all the time. Everyone needs to go see a live wrestling show once in their lives because it's a good slice of America right there. <laughs> I and I say it. that as one who has seen a number of them uh, in uh, in my lifetime. I feel like what balance we have in this podcast. I got to talk about my sermon a little bit. I get to talk about Christmas vacation. Uh, and then uh, now I'm getting to talk about wrestling. This is exciting for me. Wrestling. You even said wrestling. R a s s i n apostrophe. Yes, I, uh, I I used to watch it when, uh, I you know my dad like would watch it when I was a kid back on the old black and white TV with the uh, there was like a tag team called uh, the High Flyers or something. Um, Bobby the Brain Heenan. Does that sound right? That is that's a person that is reaching back into the vault for me. So that that may have been back before you know everybody realized that it was all scripted. Um, so anyway, I do, I do remember that. So anyway, you know, I, I, I missed the reference, uh, apologies to the fake and the real, uh, Dean Ambrose. Yeah. Well, but shout out to this guy, whoever person. left the comment anyway. Yes. If you're a real person and that is your name, one, that's awesome. Congratulations. Uh, and two, thank you either way for the, uh, for the review. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So for, uh, Will Shelton, I'm Joel Hollingsworth. Oh, the, uh, bonus points. We're going to go ahead and make it Dean Ambrose. So, yeah, I was going to say good. I got distracted by that. I didn't think of anything better. All right. This has been the game day on Rocky Top Podcast. When I started watching wrestling, it was 1997. Because I told all my friends how dumb and stupid it was. And they told me for like months and months and months, just come watch it with us once. Back when WWF and WCW were both on Monday nights at the same time, we had and two televisions to watch uh, Monday Night Raw on USA and uh, Monday Nitro on TNT. And I made fun of it, made fun of it, and then I came and watched it once. And uh, Bret Hart, Bret the Hitman Hart, was making fun of the United States of America while he was in a wheelchair. And Shawn Michaels kind of kicked him in the face. And I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. That's, you know what that is? That's a Hallmark movie. That's right. It, well, I mean, yeah, it's a soap opera for, for men, no doubt. It's a great, like, uh, I, I still keep up with it. I don't watch it every week, and I don't watch many of the big, I watch a couple of the big events uh, a, a year usually. But, man.